Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. A warm welcome and thank you for joining us on the second episode of Longer with Lest. It's a podcast series taking some of the interviews that you may have heard on air on Cape Talk and really just getting to the marrow of it. We go through a lot of conversations on here, but sometimes you just want to sit down and have a bit more of an in-depth chat with some of the people who we interview on radio. Today, we are talking to Patrick Tariq Mallet. He is a MK veteran. He's a heritage activist. He's also the author of a new book, The Lie of 1652, which is getting rave reviews. It's selling off the shelves and it's really providing another narrative to what we think or what we believe South African history is. But behind every book, behind every work of academia, behind every work of art, there is the person and they have also been influenced by their lives and their experiences. So Patrick Tariq Mella, thanks so much for joining us. I I really appreciate you talking to us today and and for the longest time, I've really appreciated your work, particularly on your social media, where you write these tomes and tomes of long, you know, in-depth Facebook, um, you know, accounts of South African history. I'm really happy that you've decided to put it between two covers in the form of a book. Well, thanks, thanks, Lester. And, uh, you know, the book was a labor of love. It's taken about three years to actually get it to publishing space. Um and it was a journey in itself. I mean, much of what's in the book is, is, is out of my own life journey and search for answers. Patrick, um, when we talk about the lie of 1652, I am totally happy to use the mythology of 1652 as a placeholder, as sort of a uh, metaphorical marker to when... The idea of colonization of the Cape and South Africa starts. Is that a, a, a proper pers- uh, perspective to have? It, it, it's a place marker. It is a metaphor. It doesn't necessarily have to be the exact date, but that is what I understand to when this almost project of what is then the Cape and what later becomes you know, the Union of South Africa and the Republic of South Africa with all its challenges, with all its colonialization and apartheid, where then the, when that then actually starts. Yeah, look, I mean, the, when, we, when we talk of 1652, we're talking about the, the, the advent of colonialism. Of course, Africa, and my book is also looking at this, African history and social history goes back for millennia, it, you know, in time. I start the book 3,000 years ago. I do a little bit prior to that on um, antiquity history, but I come into about 3,000 years ago, mm. the peopling of South Africa, and I move down to the peopling of the Cape. Um, and the 1652 uh, uh, um, paradigm is what all our history in South Africa has has always been telling us. We, we, we have almost indoctrinated to believe that this is the advent of everything. Mm. And hence, I say the lie of 1652. There's history before 1652. There is what happened in 1652. And there's what happened after that. And ultimately, in my conclusion, I'm also saying, well, 
all of this that we've talked about, we are making history right now. Mm. We're making heritage for the future right now. Um, what are the issues, the burning issues of today? And most of the burning issues of today have their roots in the past, the, 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 the tears and the triumphs of the past. So, you know, that's the framing of, of, of the book. Um, uh, the last thing I would like people to think of is that I'm also endorsing the start of history in 1652. Mm. No, it isn't. It's just this red-letter date that totally uh, uh, swings our, our African history uh, trajectory in another direction. Mm. Um, and in fact, it blots out all the previous African history. And that's what I address mm. too. I address too this concept that there was an empty land you know, the, the old papal uh, doctrine of, of uh, terra nullius, the, the, the doctrine of discovery, that Europeans could go everywhere in the world, and the notion of whether there was people or not was based on whether there were Christians or not. Mm. The Pope said, as long as there were no Christians, there were no people, mm. and therefore the land is yours to take. Um, I interrogate all of this type of stuff in, in, in the live 1652. Just going into your own personal story, we all have a, 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 a starting point to where we become conscious, where we start to have our eyes opened about what is happening around us. You firstly don't call yourself a historian. You call yourself a heritage activist. What is the difference? There's an element of what I do, which is historian. I do have a Master of Science degree, and uh, and uh, and my dissertation was in um, Indigenous history uh, of the Cape and uh, slavery at the Cape, um, for which I got a distinction. Um, but I'm more of a, a heritage activist. In other words, if I interpret heritage as our inheritance, our inheritance of the past and we're making inheritance for people in the future. Um, that uh, uh, means that we need to look at more than just, you know, people tend to, to interpret heritage as, as the cultural trappings of society. So on a Heritage Day, Heritage Month, everybody wants to retreat back into their little corners of sub-identity and participate in some cultural event. Heritage is much more than culture. The heritage that we have is the heritage of rising above adversity. And the adversity that we rose above was colonialism, slavery, genocide, de-Africanization, apartheid. It was a set of experiences. Our heritage is also the experiences that we have today. Those in our country who are living as backyard dwellers, for instance, have a very different experience from those who are living in the suburbs. Um, when history is written about heritage of this time, mm. it's going to be a mixture of those two things. So my, my own personal starting point in all of this goes back to my childhood. Mm. Um, I was, you know, born into a dysfunctional family scenario. I had a single mum who was in her 40s and you know, she had grown up children already. Um, and uh, she and my father weren't married. And uh, we were poor, really poor. We cooked on primer stove. We lived in one room. We bathed in a basin. Um, you know, uh, 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 my mum was working as a as a laundry uh, attendant in Anova Street. Um, my aunt was a toilet attendant in Anova Street. We we were we were, you know, what they call lowborns. We were we 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 were we were right at the bottom of the pile. Mm. Also, my family 
we were a mix of colored, poor white, and Indian. Yeah. And my heritage goes back along that trajectory into the past too. Yeah, before, for before 370 get, years. Before we get into to, to the story of your family heritage, um, when if I were to meet you, and, and I know we see things in the prism of race, the still ongoing Favudian project where we see people in terms of the color of their skin, in that way, Favudianism still lingers and remains in a democratic South Africa. And this is what you admit yourself, you present as a European-originated man, white man. How, how do you think, has that affected how you relate to this project of the history of South Africa and also South Africans and also how people relate to you? You are a white man. How are you supposed to know, is supposed to school me on what African history and Cape uh, history is supposed to be about? You see, people forget what apartheid actually was and, and, and they forget the legislation. Mm. Um, in the legislation, the definition of was in the first instance someone who was not uh, native and not white. But in the second clause, it says something very peculiar. It says a colored person is a white woman. And in the third clause, it says a colored person is a white man. And then it qualifies both of that. A colored person is a white woman who has married somebody who is not white. And a colored person is a white man who has married somebody that is not white. So uh, we had seven subcategories of colored, one of which was other colored. Um, most of our young people today particularly, and in fact many of the older people, don't understand what the race classification system was all about. And so they reduce it down to um, skin tone, black, and some people use the term brown, even although most colored people are not brown, in fact, are very black. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it, it's this paradigm that we need to break. Mm. Unfortunately, what our government has done, what the ANC has done, has been to take what I call uh, new wine and pour it into old wine skins of apartheid. And we all know that when you pour new wine into an old wine skin, the wine skin sours, it becomes vinegary. And also what happens is the wine skin bursts. And that's what we have today. Um, uh, you know, in my family, if you look at, let's say, two of my cousins, one cousin, blonde hair, blue eyes, pale skin, her brother looks dark, deep, dark Indian. And uh, when apartheid came along, when bicycle apartheid or cinema apartheid happened, the one would be sent upstairs, the other one downstairs, brother and sister. That is our family experience, our experience of apartheid as other colored, as, 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 as a, a, a family which, which was multi-ethnic in its makeup. Um, so when I say to people, well, you know, uh, I am somebody that was classified colored, I say, you can't be. And then they just don't know our history, that how many people that were Euro-looking actually were classified colored. And also how many people who are today regarded as black were also colored. You know, uh, I have a story in the first election when they were interviewing a chap down in Lavender Hill. And they asked him what's his name, and he said, my name is uh, Tafuji Swa. Um, and then the next thing they said, well, okay, who are you going to vote for? He said, I'm going to vote for the bald-headed fellow. 
And so people said, the, the journalist said to him, but, but, but why? He says, because I don't want a Kafir living next door to me. Wow. The man's name is Kafir Jiswat, and he is black. So this is the contradictions of, of this classification mm. bubble that we live in. It's, it's and a, what I do in, six, in, in the live 1652 is to break that. It's, it's a similar story that I recall uh, in, in my circles, that an older gentleman in 1994 who also is classified, lives within a coloured community, um, could present easily as 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 a white man in 1994. Said that um, why must I vote for the ANC? I can go swim at Musenberg because he presented as a white man, but still living in you know in a coloured community, and that was sort of very very interesting about that time of how we were drawn into our little. A little circles, but going back, well, you, you know, you know, the, the law said a white man was. It it it, it 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 described a white person, and then it had a clause that said a white person is also somebody who is not obviously white, but who is accepted to be such. So, you know, um, this whole race classification thing was as clear as mine. Just going into back into your your family history, um, you in your book you talk about being cared for by um, by a nun. I think it's at St Martin's in District Six. What was a turning point for you was seeing this um, this nun pray at the altar of I think a South American saint, and how this 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 model of the saint was that of a dark skinned poor looking man and you have this white nun kneeling and you know praying at this altar what, what did that have what impact did that have on you and how you see particularly you know the, the, the racial dynamics of that time in district 6 well yeah you know, my mom was working in the laundry shop and when the inspectors came around she couldn't be seen to have a child with her so she would farm me out to the shop and also to the Holy Cross nuns up the road in uh, Soul Street Mile Street um now, Sister Mary Martin, this, this German nun, uh, had this devotion. In fact, she named herself after the saint, San uh, Martino de Porres of uh, Lima and Peru. Um, St. Martin's um, uh, 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 parentage was a African slave uh, uh, mother and a Spanish soldier father. And, of course, he, 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 he grew up and he administering to the poor and he joined the Dominicans and so on and he's you know was made a saint in in in, in recent times um, so it would be this white German nun kneeling in front of a black man and asking him for advice and she taught me then about what slavery was and so on I was about eight years old and that became a magnificent obsession for me when I realized that my great-grandmother maternal was somebody who had been born into slavery um, in, in, in the early 1800s, um, just before the abolition. And, and, and so, you know, it started a journey for me, which resulted in me finding out that, you know, over the last 400 years, I, I have 28 people in my family tree who were enslaved in their lifetime. So that is my personal journey along the, 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 the route to, to uh, mental freedom. You know, uh, Marcus Garvey and Bob Marley, none but ourselves can free our minds. Mm. And, um, and 
one of the things that also happened to me was, you know, I had a very short stint at high school because I had to go out work when I was 15. But my history teacher in Standard 6 was a priest. And he walked into the classroom one day waving the textbook and he threw it violently into the dustbin. He said, that's rubbish. It's propaganda. I'm not prepared to teach you that propaganda. So at the end of the year, before the exams, I'll tell you what they want to hear. But in the meanwhile, we're going to explore history. And let me tell you, he said, all history is versions. Mm. You've got to look at the different versions and see what falls between the cracks if you're going to understand what history really has to offer us. That was indelible experiences in my childhood. So a family that was disrupted because of apartheid um, a, 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 and, and poverty, and, you know, half my family had to leave the country um, uh, uh, just to lead normal lives. Others worked at sea rather than stay here. They stayed on the high seas all their life. I ended up going and fighting the liberation struggle, joining the ANC, because we would not accept this race classification system as being our identity. Our identity is much broader than color, race, or ethnicity. Patrick? Recently, a friend of mine uh, was gifted a a, a genealogy chart um, that Mm -hmm. took them back to uh, the 11th great-great-grandparents. And I thought, what a privilege that is to be able to track your history, your heritage to as far back as your 11th grandparents, all the way back to Scotland. And and I often think that many times, many South Africans, many South Africans who are from particularly slave descent in, in Cape Town, don't necessarily have that privilege. We could probably go as far back, uh, looking at some of the um, the, the records. I know of of uh, some people with the surname uh, Dakab uh, coming from 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 slavery. And if you may be lucky, you can maybe trace something back on someone who came, uh, you know, on a ship or was brought uh, involuntarily on a ship year to year to year to Cape Town. Isn't that the, one of the privileges that, that, that is often overlooked, being able to go back, go research your family, going all the way to your 11th great-grandparents and saying, this is where I come from? Yeah, look, the, 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 the whole issue of genealogy um, being accessible to everybody uh, is something which I'm also passionate about and addressing. And in fact, next year, um, we're... Uh, uh, starting a museum, the Commission Museum at the Castle. And part of that will be to introduce people on how to do their genealogies, how to do their family trees, how to do DNA testing and so on. Um, I, you know, didn't even know who my was when I originally uh, uh, started out on this track. Today I know 400 years of family tree, and as I say, 28 of my family members in that tree were enslaved peoples, another five were Khoi, and another 19 Europeans. That is the, the, the mix. I've actually traced that there are 195 roots of origin of people who are classified as colored, and most people don't know that. So in the, in the Commission Museum, we're going to create a scenario where people will, will be able to explore and familiarize themselves with that element, the social history, the genealogical history, the genetic history of people who are classified as colored. And it is a great privilege because it's so liberating to be able to look at these different tributaries to what makes us who we are today and what makes our culture what it is today. 
for too long, particularly colored people have been told, well, use something between the wire and the wall. Use something of endage. Um, you're a non-African. You don't have a heritage. You don't have culture. And it's all not true. We suffered this under the past, and we're still suffering this now post-apartheid. Um, so it's part of my passion to go from the book to something more tangible in the form of the museum, which will be based at the castle and will open in about March next year. Very warm welcome back. You are listening to uh, Longer with Lester podcast series where we delve a little bit behind the scenes of some of the people that we interview here on Cape Talk. We are speaking to Patrick Torek Mellet. He's the author of The Lie of 1652. He's also a heritage activist, but that hasn't always been your full-time jobs, Patrick. You've spent time overseas as a member of Mkontewe Sizwe, of the ANC Underground. You've gone for, for training. You've also after 1994, you were a communications officer at a first democratically elected parliament. Just what was that like? A, a parliament for all, a parliament for the people, especially with all its remnants of apartheid and colonial history. I'm quite surprised, and, and I, I spend a lot of time at parliament doing some of my work there. In the old, um, in the National Assembly, uh, section of the, the parliamentary buildings, so it used to be the old Senate. If you walk through some of the walls there, you will find an old South African flag, a huge South African flag, the size of a wall. And right next to it is a British United um, Union Jack flag. And I thought that was so very interesting that in a democratic post-apartheid South Africa, those symbols, those remnants still have a place in telling our story. No, absolutely. You know, everything that we, we, we see and have as tangible objects have a story behind it. Now, you know, very often people will say, well, why can't we just be South Africans? And they forget that South Africa was only created 110 years ago, and it was created by two warring factions. Now, when we, at Parliament, looked at um, displaying some of these things, you display it so that it can tell the story uh, you know, of uh, a, a union of South Africa having been established that had no black participation in it whatsoever. And when I say black, I mean all persons of color. Um, you know, for the first time I mean, in 1994, everybody got to vote in common parliament. So you, 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 you cannot, and it's not in our interest to say, well, we're, going to, we're just going to forget about the Union of South Africa. We're going to forget about the Cape Colony. We're going to forget about a whites-only parliament and all of that. No, we should never forget about those things. But the, the memory of those things should not be a glorified memory. It should be the memory of what it stood for, the disposition that it stood for. It was a privilege to work at parliament. I was head of public relations under Dr. Frenich and Wilder, the first speaker. And I used to pinch myself every day and say, did we actually manage to get here? And that managing to get here was a struggle. There's a range of methods that we used in struggle to fight for freedom. We should never forget that. I think the, 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 the first five years at Parliament uh, were wonderful. And one of the first things we said was, 
parliament is fortress parliament. We need to open the doors to all of the people. The securocrat approach of closing down parliament to the public, um, uh, we, we, we tackled it and we freed up and people could walk through the gates as they please. Mm. We encouraged people to come to every portfolio committee. We encouraged people not to just come there and sit and walk, but to actually table questions. Um, we, we, we had two slogans at that time that we created uh, with, with Dr. Jinwal, and the one was, the doors of Parliament are open to all. And the second one was, Parliament making democracy work for you. And the, the meaning of the Greek for democracy, demos kratos, means people power. But tragically, unfortunately, we have let that fade into the background. And what's happened is Parliament has again become, you know, under the Zuma era, Parliament became fortress Parliament again. Securocrats took over, the gates were put up, you know, there was the strict uh, uh, keeping of people out. Portfolio committees became uh, something that only, you know, parliamentarians and professionals um, could come to. The ordinary people could no longer table their views. Mm. And so what we had was a move away from people power to what I call party power. Mm. And party power is not democracy. Where a ruling party actually says, what goes on within our ranks is none of the business of the public. And then it appoints public representatives that the public didn't appoint, but the party point appointed. So, uh, you know, I have a critique of that wonderful period um, uh, of our parliament, which, which splits it into that wonderful period, and then that reversion back to the apartheid era of an elite uh, institution with a huge gap. You know, my mum, Whenever she, whenever she wanted to go to the toilet out in the public or at someone's house or whatever, mm. she would always say, oh, where's your parliament? I need to use your parliament. <laughs> you know? And, 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 and that, was the, that was a reflection of the gap um, of not being part of, not belonging. And what the ANC has done is we've, we've, we've snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory in that we have now turned our parliament and our whole political uh, process into a circus, into a pyramid scheme of patronage of party power, and people are left outside the door. Just to continue on that analogy of, of your mother, I, I, I've spent a bit of time in parliament. I, I like some of the old colonial features because I can tell you where the best bathroom is in parliament that has those <laughs> traditional porcelain shanks you know well built and will yes. and endurance but that but has endurance but that's a totally different story um you also have been you know, head of immigration for the department of home affairs here in the western cape and, and and cape town that was before you retired um i'd like your thoughts on the concept of an immigration service, an immigration or an um, body, when the concept of the nation state is is but a construct. It's a political construct. We are a world that has no physical borders. It's all man-made. I'd like your thoughts on that, being part of an immigration authority. But also, when you write your book, you also speak about how borders are in fact man-made that create nation-states? Well, look, the you know, borders, first and foremost, we were imposed. So there's a number of subjects to discuss under that uh, uh, that you did now. But we, we inherited the, uh, 
these colonial borders that cut through communities and created scenarios of them and us. Mm. Um, we all forget that, you know, it was an international community of enslaved persons that built this country. They were followed by indentured laborers. They were followed by migrant laborers. Um, now we want to call these people aliens. So this is a major challenge for us. There is an important role for regulating travel across the globe and across borders because terrible things do happen, like human trafficking, which is one of the areas I specialized in. And because of my background in you know, understanding slavery, the human trafficking of today is the slavery of today. Yeah. So there was that aspect to our work. But they also, you know, um, this whole arena of immigration was a re- an arena of xenophobia. Yeah. I spent a huge amount of time rescuing people from the hands of my own officials who, who, who had terrible ways of dealing with people who were deemed to be the other. So um, while we, 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 we do need an immigration service and we do need regulation, what we have to separate is uh, regulation from the sense of um, keeping people out. That's not what the job is about. Why you need regulation is that, um, you know, we only have excellent infrastructure, and that infrastructure, our toilet systems, our electricity, our homes, etc., and that is all limited, and it's not actually even dealing with the population that resides permanently in South Africa in a proper way. Um, but we need to make provision. If we spend great tourism and we bring people here within the tourism facilities, then it's a problem. So it's important to have regulation, but the regulation should never be designed around keeping people out. Um, it should be a facilitative mechanism. And so in my time, in, you know, I also served as, as, as special advisor to Naledi Pando when she was Prime Affairs Minister. In my, my advisory in that was, you know, I would, and I would always talk to my men, particularly when they violated, that, you know, you deal with human beings and that firstly and foremostly in Southern Africa, we have cousin connections across all of the countries and we should have a much, much more relaxed immigration regime uh, for Southern Africa. We're also part of the continent of Africa and we talk, talk about ourselves as Africans. We should have a particular approach to Africa um, that is similar to the approach the Europeans take in Europe. Um, we also have these strong Asian connections um, because of slavery and migrant labor and so on and, and indentured labor. Um, this should inform a, a very humane policy um, where we balance security and regulation with humanity. And, 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 you know, people traveling across borders very often help to enhance economies. Um, we need to look at all of this in a very deep and balanced manner. And I believe that during my time within the service, um, I try to facilitate that as much as possible. Patrick Tariq Mellet is the author of The Lie of 1652. It has been in all good bookstores for a while now. Get your copy, read it. And what Patrick really wants to say is don't take his word as gospel. Also question 
some of the things that he presents. But Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're on Longer with Lester. Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Kate Talk.